All right, well, welcome to our Voices of Grambling's past 125th anniversary podcast. Today we're talking with Professor Herb Simmons from the Criminal Justice Department and an alumnus of the institution. And uh, we're very happy to have you here uh, with us, Dr. Simmons, and um, we appreciate your time. So thank you. I'm, I'm uh, Brian. I'm excited that you uh, invited me or asked me to be a part of this uh, podcast. So um, uh, what more um, uh, better opportunity to talk about my days at Grambling and, of course, uh, what Grambling is all about and I guess where it's going in the future. But anyway, I'm just excited to be with you today. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, yeah, thank you so much. And in fact, I calculated it um, myself the other day. And, and if I'm not mistaken, you have actually been associated with Grambling in one way or another for a little more than half of the institution's entire existence. <laughs> that, that's, that's correct. But, uh, you know, that I, I, I hope you view that as an endearing a compliment uh you know that's correct i attended grambling uh in uh starting in 1961 graduated in 1965 um you know i was there when uh, of course the second president president jones who served the institution for 41 years and uh, i missed uh the uh the first president that is the founding president uh, Dr. Adams, uh, by one year, he died in 1960, and I came to Grambling in 1961. And I often uh, lament uh, not having a chance to to have met uh, Dr. Adams. So, but anyway, I had a great great run with President Jones. Uh, it was an inspiring four years, uh, and uh, years after that which maybe we'll talk about later on in uh, in this uh, event. Yes, absolutely. So to get started, can you tell us a little bit about your, your background, where you're from, why you decided to attend Grambling, uh, kind of background information about yourself? Okay, yeah, be happy to do so. I, I'm uh, uh, from a little town um, called Jonesboro, Louisiana. Uh, it's about 21 miles south of the town of Ruston. Graduated from the um, high school, uh, Jackson High School, uh, at that time, of course. Uh, subsequently, the school be- uh, was integrated, the system was integrated, and uh, Jackson High uh, was ultimately demolished. Uh, but from there, I uh, went on to my alma mater, Grambling State University, uh, spending four years of exciting years uh, at the institution. And from there, I went on to Howard University for law school, graduated, and I uh, spent uh, approximately 15 years in the nation's capital, in Washington, D.C., uh, serving in uh, uh, numerous capacities um, from, um, you know, law school, uh, being involved in, and teaching at Howard University, uh, to forming a national organization, a consumer protection organization, which I served as executive director for years. And, of course, when I left D.C., 
I came back to Louisiana, but I left um, from the city working for uh, Marion Barry, who was the uh, mayor at that time, um, as head of the uh, city's consumer and regulatory affairs uh, unit. So, uh, but anyway, I came back to Louisiana. I always, although I went to Howard, uh, went to law school, it was always my intent to return to my home state and uh, my hometown uh, with all the knowledge and expertise I'd learned uh, during those days in Washington. I wanted to come back to Louisiana, Bryant, and to apply uh, some of the knowledge and programs that I had been introduced to a small town like Jonesboro. And, uh, uh, you know, it's been over the years, the last 30 or 40 years, uh, back to Lafayette, Louisiana, and then, of course, uh, 15 years there. And ultimately, I came to Grambling as the uh, director of alumni affairs I uh, served in that position for seven, eight years, and of course, I went back to my love of teaching, uh, and uh, I'm now uh, semi-retired, and I would say that perhaps uh, my experience, both as alumni director, as well as uh, a classroom teacher, has probably been one of the most um, rewarding, uh, exciting uh, part of my prof- uh, my professional career. And that's pretty much me in a nutshell. Well, that sounds great. Thank you so much. Um, why, why is it that you attended Grambling as an undergrad? Did you have family who went or um, anything like that? Was there anything, any particular reason why you attended Grambling? Well, unfortunately, um, um, back during my uh, the 60s, uh, I had two choices. Either if you wanted to uh, go to college or attend the college, you had two choices primarily, and that was uh, Southern University or Grambling uh, College. It was Grambling College at the time I attended. Uh, my being the first to attend college in my family, of course, uh, resources were limited, um, and so uh, I, you know, had to seek uh, ways and means to assure that I would make it through uh, college. And so what happened is that I came to Grambling on a band scholarship. I had, uh, my instrument was trombone, and uh, I had, uh, through my four or five years, in uh, high school, I became, I think, pretty good uh, with a trombone. And so uh, the uh, band director had heard me play uh, in a lot of contests uh, and uh, presented me with a scholarship uh, to Grambling. And so here I am off to Grambling uh, because of the scholarship and uh, uh, made it through, played four years, uh, three and a half years as the uh, first seat. Uh, not a music major, but uh, I played. He saw, I guess, some talent in me, which allowed me to make my way through 
uh, Grambling on a band scholarship. So I was in the first band that, uh, well, in the band that really participated in what was the forerunner to the Super Bowl. Uh, we uh, were, uh, um, what is it, solicited or invited uh, to participate in at that time it was the East and West game between the two professional teams uh, East and West but um, some maybe a couple two or three years later uh, it became the uh, Super Bowl game so I was excited because I mean for us little country boy from Jonesboro Louisiana in Grambling's band going to San Diego, California to play in a game that was televised nationally, nationally televised. And so we were so excited about that. Uh, and um, I guess to sum it up, um, Brian, my, my decision to go to Grambling probably uh, again, was one of the best decisions that I made because Grambling uh, through the years has become known worldwide, uh, not only in Louisiana and thanks, I would say thanks to Coach Eddie Robinson and to uh, Conrad Hutchinson, who was our band director. Uh, I think with the combination of those two and, and a couple of more, Collie Nickerson, uh, Collie J. Nickerson, they put Grambling on the map. And uh, since my days, the band and the band, the band has traveled worldwide. And even when I'm traveling worldwide, I, if I wear, a, a, say, a, something with Grambling on it, People rushed to me and said, oh, you attended Grambling, 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 Grambling. I said, yes, I did. And to me, that's remarkable, you know, because of the contributions that not only in the sports, uh, uh, in music, but there are other areas of the university over the years that we have had a tremendous uh, impact and I would say there's been a, a lot of comp accomplishments um, in the academic side. You know, one time Grambling held the record among HBCUs. It is producing more, what is it, uh, uh, students uh, in um, computer science. And little do you know, Brian, that Grambling held the record at one time in producing uh, uh, not forensic scientists, but it is kind of maybe having a senior moment now, but uh, physics in the field of physics. We, uh, among HBCUs, Grambling uh, produced more physics than any other HBCU. So it has a history. Yeah, no, I, yeah. yeah I, I didn't know that about the, uh, I knew that about computer science, but I didn't know that about, about physics. Um, okay. Very, yeah, very, very interesting. Um, you, you've already touched on this a little bit, but um, how would you describe the Grambling College that you attended in the early 1960s when you were there from 61 to 65? What, what, what was the atmosphere of the universe of, of the college, I should say? Like, what were the pe where, where were the people mostly from? Um, stuff like that. What what sticks out to you about 
about Grambling at that time? Yeah, Grambling, uh, of course, <clears throat> accommodated uh, many students who came from rural areas uh, who were in rural poverty and, of course, uh, who were searching for a way out of a, po a poverty and a better life. And uh, Grambling, I would say that uh, provided that outlet for so many of us who came from uh, families who were impoverished. Uh, but, but one thing I can say about my days at Grambling, there was a demand for excellence. There was a demand for hard work, uh, for uh, serious study uh, and scholarship. Uh, you know, the discipline was certainly in place uh, at that time. Uh, and the university required much of students, uh, you know, to become better than the best or to become first. And to me, that uh, was a great achievement. Um, it was probably back during my days at Grambling that we adopted a somewhat a motto for the school where the place where everybody is somebody. Um, and it was exemplified in um, the way we were treated as students. You think about when I was there, Brian, we the population, student population probably never exceeded 2,500 students. Uh, and so consequently, we got to know each other. A lot of us certainly in your chosen area of work or chosen field of study, you knew just about everybody uh, in, in your area. Uh, I would also comment that we knew most of the professors. We didn't have, you know, uh, 125 professors back then, we, our numbers were somewhat limited. So we got to know uh, well most of the professors throughout the university. And believe it or not, uh, professors, they knew students too. And so I think with, um, the, with President Jones, whom I, whom I uh, uh, matriculated under, he was serious about our students uh, making good, not only for them. Um, one of the, uh, speaking of students and, and the relationship with the administration and such like that in the, in the early 60s, some of the other people that we've spoken to have talked a bit about some of the, what they've described as paternalistic rules under which students lived, things like that regulated smoking on campus or driving on campus or women being able to, being required to wear skirts and, and stuff like this. Um, do, you, do you remember these rules? Do, do any of these stick out to you? Ah, yeah. I, I, I can recall well, uh, Brian, uh, and, and I, I, I don't see that as being so much as a negative uh, uh, concern. Um, but it was part of the, I guess, disciplinary approach to making sure that students' primary goal was to uh, enroll in the university, study hard, and uh, 
you know, be able to graduate. They could come back, but um, it was the rule. You, unfortunately, that's, you had to go home. Now, of course, we had a dress code uh, pretty much, although it wasn't written, but um, it would be unthinkable to see uh, some of the wardrobes that, uh, as soon as wearing on the campus today. Um, and on Fridays, I remember quite well, on Fridays, every Friday we had to, uh, we had to dress. You had to, you know, uh, even if with those pair of khakis and a white shirt and a tie, you had to dress, uh, I guess, for success even back then. So I thought that was, um, you know, to me was a great attribute is you're preparing students to go out into into the real world to make a difference. So um, I don't recall seldom ever hearing of a fight on campus. Never, certainly no weapons, none of that. That was unheard of back in our day. Um, and even if there was a, uh, a little scrape or fight or something, it was settled in that way, of course. If the administration found out about it, you would be before the administration. So things like that, it provided, I think, a safe atmosphere. Students felt safe to walk the campus at night. Um, and of course, we, the library uh, was, was, was used. I mean, back in my day, that it was not only a place of knowledge, but it would be a place where you could go and to fellowship with a young lady, um, you know, spend some time. Uh, you leave there, of course, the campus was chaperoned um, by the dean of women. Um, you couldn't be standing outside uh, with a young lady. You had to be, if you were taking her back to the dorm, you do that and you go your way. So fraternizing and all that stuff was uh, out of ram at that point in time. But I think, Brian, I, I want to say that with all of the restrictions, um, I think it made for a better student. That's, you know, when I look back over my own life, I, I, I appreciate that um, that I found myself in that kind of atmosphere or environment because and I think others probably would say uh, something similar because it was something and I, I write about this uh, you know I write for several newspapers I write about the difference between then and now because during my days at Grambling it, it was a day where Students had respect for teachers, uh, respect for themselves. You know, back in those days where you were taught to look a person in the eye, taught that a handshake uh, would seal the deal, taught that, um, you know, uh, looking out for others is more important than looking out for yourself. We, 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 in excellence, we were taught that, you know, when you leave these, this institution, uh, a lot is going to be expected of you. 
And so we want to, you know, to pour into you while you hear those basic principles that will enable you not only to make a living or a life for yourself, but for others as well. So to put it shortly, I had a great time and a great experience at Grambling. Uh, that's fantastic. Um, one of the, the areas that I've been looking into and studying recently has been the, the civil rights movement uh, in the 50s and 60s in particular. And you were on uh, actually on Grambling's campus uh, during a number of significant milestones in, in the movement, most probably best remembered well, today. Oh, I'm sorry. I read I graduated, uh, Brian, in 1965. Of course, uh, you require you you remember that the march on Washington was in 1964, right? Um, when Dr. King made his "I Have a Dream" speech, uh, the the march from Selma to Montgomery. Um, those things were the civil rights movement was kicking up during that period. And um, of course, I come from a town, Jonesboro. I don't know if you know anything historically about our town. Oh, yes. Very active in the town. civil rights movement. Yes, yes. The Deacons for Defense. Uh, I grew up in that time frame where, um, the, the you know, the Deacons became the counter organization to the Klan. And so we knew about, you know, um, we were involved in the struggles, but things were kind of quiet at Grambling until I would start to say things in the civil rights vein started to make, to move probably in the late uh, 65 and on. And because when I left, and of course, as I recall, over to some of my friends that I left behind, close friends in in, uh, in uh, student government, uh, they took over the administration building. Um, when and of course, you know, uh, but I was gone at that time. But I was made aware of the thoughts and ideas that we felt um, we needed to uh, implement at Grambling. They really took off in the late, I say, '65, '68, '69. Yeah, thank you. That that's very, um, yeah, very, very enlightening. Um, just you, you um, talked about earlier how you how you went to Howard. When you did, you feel that there was a a different, um, I don't know if attitude is the right word, but a a different approach to civil rights between Grambling and Howard? Um, yes, I, I, I would say great. I would definitely say the, the level of activism at Howard was much different than it was uh, when I was a student at Grambling. Now, I left, when I left Grambling in 1965, graduated in 1965, um, I uh, went to uh, Los Angeles. I was in job search, and of course, I was classified um, as um, at a level that it was just a matter of time before I would uh, be uh, sent to the military. Uh, but 
hoping that somehow I, I could avoid that. I did get accepted to Howard Law School, and I do. I went to Washington uh, uh, in 1965, yeah, summer, late. Uh, but I, I could not stay simply because of my classification. I couldn't get a job. Nobody would hire me because they knew that if they trained me, that I wouldn't be. Uh, it wouldn't be too long before I would be leaving. So, but I came back from um, Howard, Washington D.C. to Louisiana, and I joined uh, the, the military, the army, and I spent my. Uh, two, nearly two years, uh, but I was given a, what we call an early out uh, to go back to law school, and uh, I did go back to Howard um, in 1967, and, um, and as a result of that, of course, I had been given, back then, Brian, it was called from Howard, a, a fellowship to give you money to go to school, and uh, when I came back as a Vietnam vet, Howard doubled my my uh, uh, fellowship, and I spent you know the next two years in law school, graduated, and so on. But it was during that period uh, from 1967 to uh, 70, 1970 that uh, I met people like Stokely Carmichael. Carmichael uh, Jesse Jackson was constantly on our campus, Kwame Krooming, all of those who were actively involved in civil rights activities was on Graham, I mean on Howard's campus. And uh, the law school, uh, our law school, the school and Housing Howard Law School students led a protest uh, and took over the administration building. Uh, because we felt that, um, um, unfortunately, Brian, that the makeup of the school, that is the makeup of the law school and some other professional schools, were uh, equal, were like 50-50, 50-50, In some cases, I think one case, I'm, I'm not sure it was in medicine or what, the ratio was like 60-40, 60 percent white, 40 percent African-American. Law school was about 50-50. And um, the sentiment of the student body was that while they're the only law school, one of five law schools, there's only five um, African-American law schools in the nation, that, um, that African-Americans were being denied an opportunity because, it, it, unfortunately, it was you know, equally uh, with uh, white, black, and white. So uh, that led to a protest. And there were some other things that ultimately, um, you know, um, caused for uh, students concern that's not, that wasn't happening, some programs on not being offered and so on. But they led a protest and took over the administration building and we were able to work out some settlements thereafter. So, but put it um, bluntly, yes, Howard was the seedbed, you know, with Dr. King coming to campus, uh, just about any noted 
civil rights of uh, a person uh, would visit the campus. Uh, great, thank you. Um, you. You've mentioned Ralph Waldo Emerson Jones once or twice um, already and a number of the other people we've spoken to um, who were at Grambling at this time also had a lot to say about him. Um, what were your experiences um, with him and um, you know the school as he as he ran it? Okay. Um, I um, had great admiration and respect for President Jones, although many would describe him probably a little bit different than I would. Um, uh, I was most uh, impressed with Prez's uh, concern for the success of Grambling students. Um, he always impressed upon us that uh, to achieve we had to, you know, go beyond the call of duty. That was more, that more would be expected of us if we were to, to succeed. And uh, he would intervene um, if he felt that a student was treated unfairly, because I had an experience where I had to go to him about uh, some financial aid, blah, blah, blah. And um, of course he made it known that our students come first and that this told us uh, administrator, you need to take care of this. Um, Prayers fought for, the, uh, I want to say, the success of the physical part of Grambling. You know, um, I recall one time he was called before uh, the legislature. He had fixed a leak in dormitory, uh, and he didn't have the money, uh, but he went out in, and, and indebted the school. Of course, they got mad with him calling me in, and he pleaded that these kids needed to be in a safe, uh, non-hazard situation. And of course, uh, you know, they told him pretty much, you don't, you know, we're going to let you go this time, but don't do this again. But he took chances he, to make sure that we had what we needed. And of course, he often compared uh, Grambling to Louisiana Tech. You know, when you look at the resources that were available tech to tech and to Gramlin, there's no comparison. And both schools were part of the same system. But Brian, back in those days, um, you know, the battle for civil rights, the battle for equality was one that was had to be fought over and over again, as I would say today. This battle for equal justice is not over, and but Prez was was a phenomenon to me. He 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 had his own way of doing things, and a lot of people chastised him for it. But I uh, if I had to sum him up, if I felt that I was in trouble, he would want to be the ones that I would want on my side. Um, I, I recall clearly uh, when we came to school in September, he would always hold uh, 
and assembly. You know, where all students, all students would have to uh, sit and listen as he doled out the, the, the instructions for the year. You know, the do's and don'ts, blah, blah, blah. What I expect, what the university's expectation of students, every, at the beginning of every year, he would do that. And then and, uh, as we would leave between semesters, uh, he would call an assembly again. And he would always remind us, he said, you're about to go home to your parents, many who work on the farms, who, uh, and jokingly he would say to us, i never forget, he said, now when you get home, don't forget to kiss mama and kiss papa, let them know how much you appreciate them for making the sacrifice for you, he said, but also don't forget to kiss the mule. <laughs> yeah, he would tell us to don't forget to kiss the mule that's making the way for them take care of you here at Grandma. So, and we talked talked about it jokingly, but um, he I, he was sincere. Served for forty one years. Yeah, it's, it's years. yeah, it's it's hard to believe. Um, you know, president for for forty one years. It's um, quite 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 a feat. Um, yeah, you know, saying Brent, uh, Brian, I'm going to tell you this because it just crossed my mind. I wanted to say this, um, as a part of our matriculation at Gremlin, as a student, um, there was a definitely a, an approach to uh, uh, the spiritual need of students. And uh, because a lot of students came to us confused, they didn't know what to expect. Uh, even the tuition being $240 a semester. That's what it cost when I went to at Grambling. I paid $240, at least my scholarship took care of $240 per semester. Uh, so you put that, what's that? Uh, or almost $500 for the year. But back to the spiritual aspect. Um, Every at least once a month, we would have what we call Vespa service. It's an evening service, uh, more with a religious connotation, uh, where every student on campus would have to attend. And of course, they would have distinguished uh, uh, speakers from all over the world, all over the United States would come for that hour and spend with us. Uh, we had, I remember, uh, yeah, I, I didn't get to see her, Mary McLeod Bethune, she came. Uh, presidents of Howard, presidents of, of Morehouse, all of these distinguished schools. They were invited, they would come, you know, to grambling uh, uh, at some point in time. And um, as a result of that, it kept us, um, what is it, uh, some focus spiritually. And, um, and I remember that. And you, it was mandatory that you had to attend because the deans, uh, doms, maids, and all that, they, they knock on your door and tell, you know, you, 
Vesper time, Vesper time, and all of us had to get out. We all dressed in black and white. I remember that. A white shirt and uh, a black, black pants. But it was, to me, it was a pivotal point uh, for many students uh, and to, you know, to, to keep them, uh, keep hope alive. Sounds sounds great. Um, looking at because of your particularly unique vantage point, you know, having been at Grambling in the in the early '60s, and you know, been involved with people who were, you know, even when you were no longer at Grambling, but people who were at Grambling in the later '60s and into the '70s, and then of course you yourself returned to Grambling later on. Um, what are some of the ways that you think the university has really changed the most in the 60 years or so since you, you first set foot on the campus? Uh, wow. wow. Um, maybe it's easier I... to, maybe it's easier to ask what has stayed the same? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I've watched closely and uh, carefully what has happened to uh, Grambling over the years. And you may not know this, Brian, I, several times, I was considered for the presidency of Grambling. You may not know that. Um, having worked with the president of Howard University uh, back in the 70s and the position became available. Uh, I applied for it, um, but uh, I don't quite remember, but somehow I came to the position that I was gonna stay on in Washington rather than coming back here. And so the system, I think it was secretary, pleaded with me not to withdraw my name, but I did. Uh, and later on, when I worked for Buddy Roma, the governor, uh, I was secretary uh, um, for the Department of Social Service is uh, for the state under Governor Buddy Roma. Uh, and the position became available, uh, and I had met with the governor about it, uh, and, he, and he suggested that it was something that you know I ought to consider. Blah blah blah. But, but then I learned of the politics uh, surrounding Grambling, and I um, showed that, mm, no, maybe that's not what I want to do. But I say that to say this, I have been concerned and about the direction of the institution uh, for many years. And of course, Brian, you had the opportunity to work with me, and I'm grateful uh, that uh, you were part of my team uh, as faculty senators and uh, my as role as faculty senior president, of course, we we had some challenging times. Uh, and I, I've said, uh, I said then, and perhaps I could would probably say now, it's it's been difficult. It's been a challenge to get a right mix at the institution as as head as you know as part of the leadership and so uh, i i really 
in a sense, uh, kind of weak for our institution because I'm a product of Grambling. And I'm proud of that. I'm proud of having been a product. Um, but I've always been concerned about the quality of leadership uh, at the institution. And of course, when I look back uh, over the years when I attended Grambling and probably for several decades, Rambling was referred to as, for a better term, a farming school. You know, you had teaching you how to become farmers, teaching you how to become skilled in home economics, uh, house building, cooking, and all of that. But as the time went on, Rambling, of course, had to move to uh, in different direction uh, in order to attract uh, the you know students and so so on, and uh, my having come to Grambling twenty six to twenty seven years ago, uh, at that time we had sixty degree programs, and I'm told now that we have about half of that, and of course um, that's a concern you know, that we are losing programs. And of course, I will know and you know that some of our programs today are in the balance, hanging in the balance on their low performing and so on and so on. So, but, um, you know, I still want to hold fast to the notion of where would people of color be if it were not for Grambling State University and other HBCUs. And so, yes, there's been the bottom line from the days that I attended to the present day, there's been a struggle. The HBCUs have struggled. Uh, for informational purposes, uh, in 18, the early 1800s, we had over 200 uh, HBCUs, historically black colleges, and today we have probably less than uh, half of that. I think we are probably about a 99 HBCUs today. Yeah, so I, I, we have I, had to struggle. Yeah, I think you mean the the early uh, 20th century instead of 19th century. But yes, yeah, yeah, uh, you yeah, you are yeah, correct yeah, that the number of HBCUs yeah, today yeah. is. Yeah, I'm sorry, that's correct. I, I, that's, I misspoke on that, but you're right. So, but the diminution you see has taken place. Not that, um, you know, some have fallen for various reasons. You know, not, not all of them fail because of non-performance, but um, doing Jim Crow errors and all of that, you know, segregation, a lot of those schools were in a sense defunded purposely. So, uh, but I'm hoping I answer your question by saying between 1965 and 20, was it 2022, uh, we have seen a, um, a, a, you know, a tremendous, uh, what is it, uh, challenge for a Grambling State University. And, I, and, and I, Brian, I think we have to confess 
a reality here about this situation. And it is this. Today, more than 85% of African-American kids are going to predominantly white institutions. And we find ourselves in a situation of not being able to compete with the offerings of the majority institutions. Our best and our brightest are being ciphered off by the majority institutions. Because finally we recognize that these institutions, the majority institutions, realize that it's about money. It's about dollars. And so what happens in a lot of cases, at the end of the day, what we get at our institutions are students who are in need of remediation or they come from dysfunctional families. Many of them happen to be first-time students again. And so we spend an enormous amount of time and resources preparing those students for the real world. And I think that, you know, it's an enormous burden. Um, and of course, alumni participation, haven't been in alumni affairs for the institution. Um, I have always maintained that um, alumni can do more. We can give more back to the institution. But, you know, we, talk, we take pride in saying about our athletes who are now star performers for this team, but they don't give back to the institution, you know. And so hardships for schools like Grambling and Southern uh, without any large endowments, you know, uh, we are not like Howard, my, my law school. Howard has a two or $300 million endowment. Um, uh, Spelman, two or three hundred thousand dollars endowment. Uh, so Morehouse, all of those schools. But when you come to state schools, we just don't have that. And the reality, it takes money. If you want to play in the big leagues, you got to have the money. And of course, Brian, you know, we discuss these kind of things that when we talk about whether or not we, we are an athletic school or we are an academic academic institution do we put more money into athletics or should we be putting more money into what academics or academics carrying athletics so um, yes we we have some challenges but um, I'm not going to give up <laughs> not giving up uh, I know it may in some situations may Theme or sound hopeless, but um, you know, as an alumnus, I I think the challenge is to get in there, get up, get knocked down, get back in the ring, and fight one more round. That's what that's what I plan to do. What I'm trying to do now. 
that sounds like a great use of time. Um, sounds like a great use of your of your uh, upcoming retirement that I that I hope you very much enjoy. Yeah, I'm working on now the uh, the school, the new home for for community. I mean, for criminal justice. You know, I've brought it before you guys many times at the faculty senate before the faculty senate is that we need a home for criminal justice. Here is. Here is a department, uh, one reports one-third, one-third of the university's budget comes from criminal justice. But criminal justice has been a uh, program or a department that has been scattered all over the campus. You know, teachers over here, uh, staff over there. And to me, that's despicable. Here is a department that earns, that brings one-third, contributes one-third to one-third of the university's budget. I mean, it's enrollment, student-wise. And so finally, uh, uh, we have been, uh, the old Alma J. Brown Building Colossal School of Nursing has been designated as the new home for criminal justice. And I was up there just uh, couple of days ago uh, touring the building uh, and of course realizing that it's unsuitable right now for our needs but um, they are I, I, I'm thinking somewhere in the neighborhood some uh, we got state funding uh, but it's it's going to take a great deal of money to make it what it should be you know where we even have moot the moot court courtroom and uh, forensic laboratories in that building, you know, those kind of things that would make for a state-of-the-art um, criminal justice department. So I, I'm going to stay if they, as long as they ask for my help. I fought for that building for years, and I, nothing would be more pleasing to me than to see it come to what fruition. Uh, it becomes a reality. Well, it sounds like a like a fantastic project, and uh, I wish you uh, all the success at at uh, bringing that to reality. Um, with this, uh, with that said, we're we're near the end of our of our time. Um, is there anything else that you would like to like to add before we before we sign off about your memories related to Grambling? Well, you know, I, I, I first of all, I want to thank you for allowing me to share these comments with you today, uh, Brian. And um, I'm kind of like um, President Joseph Johnson said in one meeting uh, we had with him, and he was talking about where Grambling was going and the need for Grambling and so forth and so on. And one statement I has stayed with me, has haunted me through the years. And he said something like, Herb, I hate, I would hate to see that when I drove through the campus with my grandchildren, that I would have to say to them, that's the place that Grambling used to be. And I, that is, stayed with me through the years and 
I share that same sentiment, those comments, that it is my hope, it is my prayer, that uh, an institution that started in 1901, 100 plus, what, 20 or 30 years old, is that we would preserve it for future posterity. And that um, the motto of Grambling being the place where everybody is somebody. Uh, and when we sing our uh, alma mater, I remember the words so clearly uh, that we will what? A fight for Grambling that that the, the 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 institution in essence will will will, uh, will serve the instant and the instant time and generation, so they too can go on to what to make a difference in the world. In the, so I, I'm 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 just um, I'm optimistic. I'm, I'm gonna keep the op, the forward look um, and. Um, I just believe somewhere in all that we do that Gramlin will survive. I believe that. And I'm hopeful and I'm praying that this too will pass. Well, thank you so very, very much for your time. Um, I appreciate it and the uh, other members of the history department, including our many students who have worked on this project and continue to work on this project, also also uh, appreciate your time. And um, with that, we will sign off. Thank you for listening to our Voices of Gremlin podcast. Questions were written by Simone Mon, Natalie Warren, Aja Edwards, and Alexandra Williams, all students in Gremlin State University's History Department. The Voices of Gremlin podcast is a production of the History Department at Gremlin State University. It is developed by the students and faculty. Funding for the 2021 Rebirth Grants has been administrated by the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities and provided by the National Endowment for the Humanities as part of the American Rescue Plan and the NEH Sustaining the Humanities through the American Rescue Plan Initiative. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities. And, and thank, thank you so, so much, much for listening. listening.